1: Hello, welcome to The Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is one of those shows that exists as a time capsule of the strange era in which we're in. This is a show really devoted to the question of, is there some kind of... Sinister conspiracy between the head of our government and the head of the Russian government. Uh, If not, why do so many people think there is? Could the fact that so many people think there is lead to damaging consequences on its own, even if there's nothing really there? Could the fact that so many people are looking for something lead to the president obstructing justice and creating massive cover-ups, even if there is nothing there? My guest today is Masha Gessen. Masha is a Russian American journalist. She's done tremendous work from Russia for a very long time, where she was an extremely important LGBT activist as well. She's the author of The Man Without a Face, which is a tremendous biography of Vladimir Putin. She's the author of Words Will Break Cement. But since the election, she's been writing some really viral, important pieces about how to think about Donald Trump, how to think about him through the Russian lens, how to think about him through the experience of covering Putin and she existed in an interesting intersection on the one hand she has looked at trump through this russian lens really from the beginning in a way other people haven't and with the sophistication that other people haven't on the other hand she is very skeptical of the theories around trump and russia she she is very worried both that people are getting ahead of the evidence, but also they're beginning to develop a conspiracy theory frame of mind in in ways that will be damaging. So, So we talk about that. We talk about what might be a plausible explanation for the many strange contacts and relationships and appearances of aid between the Trump campaign and and, and the Russian government, and what would be a a sinister explanation. We talk about how would we even know the difference between them. We talk about what Jared Kushner might have been doing in those meetings. We talk about the rise of sort of Russian fake news on the left. There's a lot in this conversation. There's a lot to think about. Check out a couple of the other great podcasts on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I Think You're Interesting with Todd Vanderwerf and The Weeds, uh, my other podcast with Matt Iglesias, Sarah Cliff, and others, where we talk about policy and the events of the day and there is plenty to talk about we just did a, an, an episode i enjoyed quite a bit on mass incarceration so you may want to check that out uh that said here is Mashi gesson masha gesson welcome to the podcast i am excited to have you on because you have been helping me and a lot of other people think through the questions of, of donald trump and russia in a more textured way. And I find myself much more confused and alarmed than I was even two or three months ago. So so I wanted to begin by asking you for your description of where things stand in your eyes. When, when people say to you, what is going on with this Trump-Russia thing right now? What do you tell them?
2: Well, that that's a big question. OK, um, no one has actually asked me what's going on with the Trump-Russia thing. People usually ask me why I make light of it. Uh, why I'm so opposed to – why I call it a conspiracy theory. And it's a complicated thing to explain. So I'm just going to answer the question you didn't ask. Um, (laughs) Most people do. Um, So, you know, I'm on record as calling it a conspiracy theory and sort of trying to get us out of conspiratorial thinking about Russia, which is really hard because there may be a conspiracy. So the argument I've been trying to make is the counterintuitive argument that possible existence of an actual conspiracy is a poor excuse for conspiracy thinking. And what I mean by that is that from the moment that sort of the first intimations of the, of the Russia meddling appeared, which I would place uh, sort of last summer around July, this trope of Trump as the Manchurian candidate has been around. And at the time, it was a way to try to dismiss Trump, to imagine him as a Russian agent, something you know, such a foreign object that it could, we didn't have to take him seriously, right? Or we could take him seriously, but as a foreign threat, and not actually as an American presidential candidate, whom Americans were, in my mind, very likely to elect, which is what they did. So then it shifted to a. Uh, This idea of the Russian uh, story as an explanation for how we got Trump, that Russia elected him, and also a fantasy of how we're going to get rid of Trump because once it becomes clear that Russia elected him, this national nightmare was going to be over. And there are obvious problems with that. And I think people have – even a lot of people who were really you know sort of shocked and embroiled by the Russia story early on are sort of coming around to an understanding. Strangely, as it actually acquires some meat, right, uh, the story, people are starting to understand that, yeah, probably this investigation uh, is going to take years and it's not going to produce sort of the silver bullet that's going to get rid of Trump. Um, and my suspicion is that not only is it going to take years, but it's going to produce a lot of loose ends. There certainly you know, bad faith agents. Russia certainly was trying to disrupt the election. I have no doubt about that, and I think we have enough evidence on that. But the bar to actually proving collusion is extremely high. It is weirdly especially high with this president who doesn't seem to have a consistent thought from you know, one hour to the next. So I suspect that proving that that he carried out a plan, that he was consistent in his negotiations, that that's going to be an impossible task because it probably didn't happen because he's not actually capable of
1: it. So that I think – that'll actually – practically that last bit makes a lot of sense. But let me try to break this down a little mm-hmm. bit more. So take my big initial question and, and take it in chunks. Mm-hmm. Listening to you describe it, it, it seems to me that that you have sort of four things you're looking at here. And, and I think that we're all looking at, um, but but you're looking at more systematically. There's a question of what actually happened. Uh, what, if any, single picture unites the sort of various weird threads and factoids that have begun to emerge? Why did Jared Kushner have that weird meeting asking for potentially uh, a Russian-protected communications channel outside the normal bureaucracy? Why are there all these sort of lies about who met with whom when? Then there's a question, if we did have the answer of what happened between the Trump campaign and Russia, of what are the consequences of it, right? Were any laws even broken? Would anybody even care? Um, Then it seems to me there's what hopes and biases do people bring to it? What might they be motivated to believe? What do they wish they could believe? Um, And then sort of related to that, what – Danger is both substantive in the way it warps a political conversation here and, and, and psychological in maybe the way it lures people towards um, unwise conspiracy thinking, which I think is very much happening on the left. Uh, what dangers does it pose to American politics going forward? Does that, does that feel like a reasonable way to break that down?
2: I think that's exactly right.
1: So let, let's begin with what happened. And, and let me frame the question this way. There are a lot of pieces of a puzzle that are, to me, just sitting in a jumble on the floor. There is more than feels to me that can be explained by nothing, but certainly not enough that I can put the whole thing together. So there are kind of crazy explanations or explanations that still feel to me very outside the realm, like the Manchurian candidate kind of thing. But what feels to you like the plausibly innocent picture? And what feels to you like the plausibly sinister picture?
2: You know, they're actually pretty close together in my mind. Um, because I think what we 're going to end up with in the end, and this is my theory of everything it 's not just my theory of the American election, my theory of everything is everything is a mess, and everything is a jumble of intentions you know, i have I have a personal psychological theory of what Jared kushner was was doing asking for a back channel it 's a psychological theory it 's not you know it's not it 's not based on uh, on anything but the known facts and and conjecture so what I think is that Trump wanted some grand deliverables before he took office like the carrier air conditioning company 800 jobs that he blackmailed and bullied the carrier into keeping in the united states for a few months right so he wanted something great like that with russia and so he dispatched jared kushner to broker a deal with vladimir putin on an international anti-terrorist coalition that he was going to be able to announce before the inauguration or right after the inauguration or maybe during the inauguration. Who knows? We know that this is his sort of mentality and his view of the world. It's it's a transactional world in which he is the, the brilliant deal maker, And he intended and he continues to intend to govern by gesture, right? So it's all about sort of showing what a great deal he made. If Kushner was dispatched to do something like that during the transition, of course, he couldn't do it within the framework of the existing national security establishment. Um, And so he asked for a back channel, being the incompetent, clueless son-in-law of the incompetent, clueless president that we have, right? Uh, It's not an innocent explanation, because we still have the son-in-law and assistant of the incoming president— working in a way that makes some of the most important american institutions irrelevant and that is designed to make them irrelevant right which is also sort of a modus operandi of this of this administration but it's also not you know it's it, it it's not the smoking gun that we're looking for the bullet here is the is, is incompetence so i think that um I'm I'm giving you an answer that's both an innocent and a not so innocent explanation, right?
1: You know the the thing that I I think about in in that answer, and and I don't think that that sounds um, doesn't sound implausible to me, but it, it's so strange to me in the context in which they were operating. So so you're Jared Kushner, and you're the member of the sort of Trump inner circle who is not there because you've on some level been a fringe character, is not there because you're an ideological extremist, is just there because like you met a beautiful girl and you fell in love with her and then her father happened to be this guy and he ran for president and you're, you're a family loyalist. And, you know, it's the end of the campaign and one of the things that you have gotten a lot of criticism for is this weird closeness with Russia, which is actually in a campaign that has reasonably few consistent foreign policy positions, one of the few you have, right? Vladimir Putin is a is a strong leader at the very least. Um, NATO is potentially obsolete. You know, maybe we need to do some kind of reset with Russia. There's been Russian hacking, which is at this point, you know, well into the news. People know about. People are suspicious of already. And you go to them and you say, Hey, maybe we could have a secret channel. It. It's not that there can't be a plausible explanation for that. It's just it is such an insane level of risk taking, given the context. I do not also, for that matter, understand what the non-innocent explanation would be, right? Because it has the same problem, right? There's so much pressure on you or on this one relationship. Why would you ever do something this dangerous? But there is something – I think I have this impulse and I think other people do too, which is it all seems so weird that the explanation must be weird too. Uh-huh. And I take your point that that may not be true, but but I have trouble with that. There's almost – it's. there's so much there that it feels like the explanation must be weird?
2: Well, let's I mean, first of all, I think this is a weird explanation, right? The one I just gave you. It is not normal to want to do this um, outside the national security establishment, to want to do it basically for, for brand advancement, except that it's becoming normal because that's how this president functions. But also when you're talking about risk, you're talking about risk from the point of view of somebody who assumes accountability. Jared Kushner has no experience of accountability. He's never been held responsible for being a slumlord. You know, I think that even the level of public scrutiny that he's been subjected to since he became a member of this administration, I think, has been shocking to him. That Nothing like that had ever happened to him. You know, he uh, there was that terrific piece— um, Recently on Jared Kushner, the, the the slumlord, and I'm blanking about which magazine it was in. but uh,
1: Alec McGillis in, in the New York Times Magazine, thank I believe. You.
2: Yes, you. Yes. Know, and you realize reading that piece that for years, this guy's companies have been going after vulnerable, poor people systematically. And it has never once occurred to them that this was a – publicity risk, you know, reputational risk or anything like that. They don't think in those terms because they have no experience of taking a reputational blow. Donald Trump, in fact, has no experience of taking a blow to his reputation. I think that's one of the things that have been painful to him and that's – and have caused him to lash out since he became president because generally speaking, he's been able to, you know, declare bankruptcy half a dozen times and um, cheat on his wives and stiff all of his business partners over and over again and generally act like a despicable human being and still as he rightly said he could shoot a person on the on 5th Avenue and still get elected right so your concept of risk is demonstrably different from Jared Kushner's concept of risk
1: i think that's fair although i don't know it, i i one thing i very much agree with you on here is that i find it this is a an administration that i find it hard to psychologically model kushner Maybe um, Kushner feels more fragile to me than than maybe he does to you. Um, I think he's somebody his dad went to jail. Um, you know, he was written up in a book for getting into Harvard because his dad paid his way. Right. I think he's dealt with a certain amount of humiliation and 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 sort of travels in circles where that matters. Trump strikes me as having a, a psychology that is, I don't want to call it unique, but is unusual and And so, the sort of normal human <laughs> reactions I, I tend to project onto people that help constrain their actions and explain them. They don't work with him but but let me let me try something because because I've been talking to a lot of people about this and and I have um my own sort of both innocuous and sinister explanation and and I want to present it to you and and have you tell me what's wrong with it if that's all right, okay? I have a theory that trump well, this part isn't a theory <laughs> the uh-huh. Trump campaign was made up of people who were very inexperienced in national politics, who are fringe figures who didn 't know sort of and I use this term ironically you know the rules they didn 't quite understand what carried what weight um, and when you 're doing presidential politics and, and you don 't really think you 're going to win, but you 're running all around and you 're busy uh you you do a lot of horse trading with a lot of different groups you go to the border patrol guards union and you talk to them about what they want and in return you get some things you want you talk to the heritage foundation you talk to the chamber of commerce you talk to um the federalist society they say hey like you know you got to choose a supreme court justice off of this list you say sure give me the list i'm i'm happy to look at it um and and then you release it so you know you're coming into this pretty pretty new and it's pretty normal that somebody comes to you and says, hey, we can help you out. We're a, we're a super PAC, um, you know, or we're connected to super PACs, right, in, in the sort of shadowy way these things work. Or we are a big interest group. We've got some OPPO on the other side, or we've got some field troops to deploy into, into you know, Ohio, or we've got some money to spend on independent expenditures, you know, but but give us a little something here. And, you know, Trump is all these people who sort of idiosyncratically are connected to Russia, um, Manafort and others. And Russia, idiosyncratically, has a bunch of oppo on the Clinton campaign. And, you know, just a relationship that feels normal to people at the time starts up. It's nobody's top agenda item collude with the Russians. Uh, It was not, did not feel, you know, maybe they said, yeah, if you're going to release this oppo, it'd be great if you started doing it on the first day of the Democratic Convention. Um, And that didn't seem like a big deal to anybody. And then later on, it turns out that that isn't like talking with the Heritage Foundation, that that isn't like talking with the Chamber of Commerce, that that isn't like talking with the Border Patrol Guards Union, that that is getting tapped by those conversations are are getting watched by the American intelligence services, that when you say Trump campaign colludes with Russia, that reads very different than Trump campaign colludes with the business roundtable. And all of a sudden, now you've got this problem because it didn't you didn't realize quite what you were doing, but you did it. And now you somehow have to defend it and now people know more than you realize they knew and and it's all on the level of scrutiny that that you didn't quite realize you had. And so I feel like there's a way for collusion to have emerged. We really – I'm not sure that's – I don't think that that's illegal necessarily by the way. But collusion that really would look bad, that really would be problematic to have been there. But they weren't trying to have some secret plan with Russia. They just thought this was how politics worked because they were doing it with tons of other groups at all times.
2: I think you're exactly right.
1: Oh well, good podcast over. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, no, I'd, 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 I'd add a couple, of, a couple of other variables. Right, um, some of these people come from business where you don't draw the same kind of line between dealing with, you know, an American wholesaler and a Chinese wholesaler. They feel pretty much like the same kinds of contacts. So I think in that sense, your uh, your analogy between you know the the Russian agents and um, the policeman's union is exactly right. They really don't know the difference. And they can't imagine the kind of public scrutiny that, that they would come in for. But one other idea that I would add to this is that there is also sort of an equal and opposite reaction, right? Which is that when the first kind of wave of public scrutiny uh, came in, we saw a lot of demonization and You know, just excitement over contexts that were actually normal. There's nothing strange about Trump campaign people talking to the Russian ambassador during the Republican National Convention. Nothing strange about it, right? So then they begin to dissemble because they don't know where they can sort of stand up and say, yeah, we talked to the Russian ambassador at a cocktail party. So what? Like so did everybody else ever. So they begin to dissemble because they don't have their bearings. So in the same way that they don't know what kind of contacts are going to look terrible under the light of political scrutiny, they also don't realize what shouldn't look terrible. And when information about contacts with with any Russian representatives became toxic, they had no way to resist. And so uh, the cover-up became worse than the crime in some cases, I think. But I want to jump to you know, this idea of collusion and what we actually – sort of the, the meaning that we invested it in. because I think one thing that, that gets lost in the conversation is the actual theory of how Russia influenced the election. The theory that's advanced by the intelligence agencies in the, in the joint report issued in December was that Russia influenced the election by influencing American public opinion. And again, that's not illegal. I'm not even sure that's wrong. Put forth the argument that it is wrong to influence another country's public opinion, and I will argue with you, because I think it happens all the time. And I think that other countries have a legitimate interest in the outcome of the American election.
1: Well, could I push you a little bit on that? Sure. I agree with the the broad point you're making there, right? I mean, Barack Obama went to England and tried to push on Brexit, right? And failed, but but tried to argue that Brexit was a bad idea. But mechanically, the the claim here. Is that Russia broke into private computer files, hacked them out, and then released them as stolen documents? Now, the media did not cover itself in glory on this, and right, and, and even Vox, right, which I think we were going you know, we did not think was good, but you know, we got these documents and, you know, looked at the WikiLeaks releases. So I'm not saying that they didn't have their their willing public conspirators on this side at all. But it does feel to me that committing what is functionally A cybersecurity attack to release secret documents to influence opinion is different than the sort of normal mechanisms by which, you know, Angela Merkel comes and gives a speech or gives an interview to an American paper or something.
2: Oh, absolutely. Yes. But I mean, the hacking is despicable and the leaking is despicable. And to my mind, the publishing of the products of the leaking and the hacking is also no great shakes and should not be done. Those kinds of documents as a rule, should be treated as fruit of a poison tree until you know there's a compelling argument made in the opposite direction. But those are sort of discrete interventions. And what ultimately influenced the outcome of the election was the change in public opinion, right, in American public opinion. So I'm not trying to excuse Russian behavior by any means, right? You know, I mean, far be it for me to excuse any Russian behavior, actually. But what we end up with in the end, right, is understanding that American public opinion was influenced and coming back to this idea that Trump is not a mature candidate uh, unless we can prove you know, high-level collusion with strategic intent. And I just don't think that that's there.
1: I mean, it's such a funny thing, right? Because I'm, you, you can so imagine it's going two ways and it is so hypocritical for the media. Look, we knew – by the end, that these WikiLeaks documents were suspected to have come from a Russian hack. We knew at the very least it came from a hack. We published them, and I actually want to—I'm—I'm I'm putting a pin in—treat these documents as fruit of a poison tree because I'd actually love to. Something I struggle with in the aftermath of it, I'd love to talk to you about how you how you think about that. But Trump, of course, <laughs> got up on national television and said, "Hey, Russia, please right. hack Hillary Clinton's computers." Right, and um. <laughs> And so it's almost weird to say, yeah, but what if we found out he said that privately too? <laughs> right. uh, th- right. There's exactly. something a little bit absurd about what we're what we're searching for here. But I, I I think there's a feeling that if Russia had come to them and said, hey, we have this stuff, or some obvious go-between had come to them and said, hey, we got this illegally. How should we use it? And they said, hey, use it this way. I think this gets to your point. Um, this is where I think people have divergent views of what might come next, right? This is where the question of possible consequences is actually quite interesting. So obviously there is a, a sphere of lefty opinion on, on Russia that is sort of spun out into very, very wild fantasizing, right? You know, John Roberts is preparing articles of impeachment kind of thing. You are seeing this in, on Twitter and elsewhere. But I, I think people have a, a sort of inchoate sense that there is something that could happen here that would shake up the political system in some way or another. Now, it might be shake it up in an impeachment way. It might be shake it up just in investigations that create continuous embarrassing leaks, which is actually what we're seeing. It might be shake it up in a way that, that leads to you know a demoralized Republican base and bigger wins for Democrats in, in 2018. But how do you see the the possible consequences of this? Because this is a place where I think people, they have intuitions, they, they, their emotional level, like it feels wrong to them. But um, I think there are reasonably few thought through end games.
2: Right. No, I think you're exactly right. Again, that, um, that people sort of sense that, oh, if we can just prove that this happened, um, then then it will all be over. And they're not thinking about what proving means, and they are not thinking about how it can possibly be over, right? I mean, I don't think that there's any way that we're looking at an impeachment process as long as Republicans have the majority in the House. That takes us to in the most optimistic scenario through the fall of 2018. But I think you're right that most likely what we're going to see is this constant sort of drumbeat of accusations, allegations, and leaks. And in my fantasy, at some point, Trump resigns saying that he's been hounded out by the Washington establishment that he ran against, that they've made all sorts of false accusations against him and didn't let him work, didn't let him get anything done. And he resigns and he starts uh, a—or he restarts— uh, or uh, or even he reinvigorates. I mean, he hasn't even stopped, you know, campaigning. He reinvigorates a popular movement, and that takes us into a whole other nightmare. Which, I think which, for which one
1: thing you're forgetting that Trump believes he has accomplished more than any modern president. So, <laughs> oh well, that's <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: you know, first of all, Trump is um, entirely capable of of, of having um, you know. Several contradictory half or quarter thoughts in his head at the same time. Uh, so yes, he has accomplished more than any modern president, but they won't let him do anything. He's said both of those things at the right, same yeah, time, that's true. and I think he believes both. But certainly, he will point to the things that he wasn't allowed to do, like the travel ban, and he will point to the witch hunt, um, which is a word that he that he's been using a lot, and that I think is sticking. Which is amazing, right? The most powerful man in the world claims that he is the the victim of a, of a witch hunt. Um, but, um, but I think that there is very little evidence, if any, that, that, that his base is slipping in any way. And I think that he probably enjoys campaigning much more than he enjoys actually being president. In fact, he's said as much. And I think that this, this country hasn't been faced, certainly not in living memory, with a popular anti-government movement, which is what, what, uh, what he would lead, which is not an argument against continuing with the investigation. That's just my nightmare scenario.
1: What I think is is interesting about some of this is there is a an emergent, it's not the crime, it's a cover-up dimension. Mm-hmm. Trump is a and this is a very bad quality for a president. Trump is somebody who responds singularly poorly under pressure. Uh, and he, he's actually, funnily enough, written about this in his books with some level of self-awareness. He wrote in The Art of the Deal that he has a tendency, if he feels crossed, to try to give it back to the person 10 times, even though that sometimes can make it worse. <laughs> sometimes it makes a deal not happen. But But you see that dimension of him in things like tweeting out that the Obama administration is wiretapping Trump Towers, which simply created more pressure for investigations of the whole thing. You see it with firing James Comey, which seems to me to be, no matter whether there was a crime here or not, a singularly counterproductive thing to have done. Uh, but that is really is the first thing I think that has really created genuine problems for Trump with Republicans in Congress who who can't quite explain that away. And, you know, now Robert Mueller comes in and, and, and et cetera and so on. So the, the one thing that does seem to me to be of real danger to his administration is whether or not they meant to do anything so sinister at the outset. They now believe correctly that there is political danger and political distraction in more coming out about their possible contacts with Russians on, on these matters. And if they try to lie and they try to stonewall around that, and with a context where there was a russian hack that people know about and they have so undermined their own credibility on these issues already because they've handled it so poorly it it does seem to me that you know a, a totally plausible scenario is that this is simply a a terrible millstone around trump's neck for really the entirety of his term um you know assuming he doesn't you know if he doesn't win a, a second term it could be that you know, we have four years and it just never stops. It never stops being a sort of leak, 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 leak. And they're never able to get just six months out of this. And so it ends up not being as dire for them as impeachment, not being as dire for them as, you know, Trump is forced into resignation. But something that by the same token, they can never escape because while the truth is not necessarily an existential threat, it's also bad enough. And they are defensive enough in these kinds of scenarios and they are angry enough about how they feel they're being treated that they they can't ever quite get past it
2: I think that's that's entirely likely um, I wonder how much it will cripple Trump I mean I think it will um, slow him down domestically which again worries me I mean obviously I, I'm, I my, my specialty is just looking for the worst case scenario in, in, in every situation so um, what worries me is that um, Trump was bound to discover how difficult it was to sort of influence the everyday life lives of Americans as president, and because he governs by gesture, he's he's also discovered that the only thing that really works for him, sort of that makes him look good on television, is war. Right? The only times that that his that he his sort of gathered accolades on, on television. And then the picture that he would be looking at was dignified was after the 59 Tomahawk missiles were fired at Syria and then the mother of all bombs was dropped in Afghanistan. And so I think he's going to want to resort to that more and more because it looks good and it's a good distraction uh, and, and it feels good.
0: This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline.
1: Your sort of early pieces on on this that went very viral right after right around and right after the election came out of your experience covering Vladimir Putin in Russia and using Putin and the Russian media and the Russian political system as a way of thinking through the dynamics that we might see with Trump. And I think a lot of that that proved to be very prescient. Um, what you just said about difficulty at home leading to the desire to project strongman tendencies abroad. I mean we've seen that in American history too, but that is also at the moment something Putin at least has been trying to do. What did covering Putin help you see about Trump?
2: Right. So it's it's an interesting problem for me because I don't want it to sound like Trump and Putin are particularly similar or connected in 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 provable ways. Um, because they're not particularly similar and we haven't proven that they're connected but I think that covering Putin over you know the course of basically two decades gave me a set of optics that allows me to to focus on things that you can see too and other people can see once I point them out but but I focus on them because I know what to look for and you know I think that that journalists who've covered berlusconi have the exact same or I mean it's a it's a different set of Optics, but it's, a, it's the same skill set. They can also point to things that are out in the open, but, uh, but that American journalists who haven't covered autocrats haven't had the experience of focusing on are gaining it very fast. It's, it's been an extraordinary time for, for sort of professional growth for a lot of journalists. So there, there are things that, that Trump does, and there the are ways in which he acts. That make him similar to Putin or Berlusconi or any number of people whom I haven't covered, but uh, but but who probably share the same traits. And of course, the top one to me is the way that he uses language, the way that he lies to assert power rather than to sort of bring you around to his view of reality, which is an entirely different way of lying. It's a bully's way of lying, but it's but it's something that fact-checking isn't effective against.
1: Yeah, we had a a great piece by Matt Iglesias this week um, called The Bullshitter-in-Chief. There's this great book uh, by Harry Frankfurt on bullshit um, where he sort of distinguishes the bullshitter who doesn't care about truth from the liar who does, the bullshitter who is (laughs) unimpeded by the truth from the liar who actually is responsible for trying to make people believe what he is saying or she is saying is true, and that that the latter is a way to see Trump— and, and, and the point Matt makes, the, the reason he says it is important is that bullshitting is very common in authoritarian and quasi-authoritarian regimes. And one way and one reason it's common is, it, is it, it's a way of testing loyalty in a system where loyalty can be very important. And the canonical example of Trump bringing that, it felt to me and to others, and, and I think Tyler Cowan, the economist, was the first to point this out to America, was right after he was inaugurated. When he made Sean Spicer go out in front of cameras and say, "Yeah, I don't care what your lying eyes told you. This was the most well attended inaugural in history. And if what you thought was happening was Sean Spicer was trying to persuade anybody of that, that wasn't true. What Spicer was trying to do was signal loyalty to Trump, and that 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 is a very dangerous thing. And 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 Matt makes this point, I think, very well, but. Because it begins to corrode the rest of the system. It's not just that you have this one bullshitter at the center of it. It's that an H.R. McMasters, who is a very respected general, if he is going to be able to keep doing work that he thinks is good, important work inside keeping Trump from doing bad things, then he sometimes has to go out and echo the bullshit. If Rod Rosenstein, who came to the uh, Justice Department as a, a well respected figure, Wants to keep his job. Um, when Donald Trump tells him to come up with a rationale for firing James Comey, he does it. And that distance from the truth and, and use of alternative facts as a loyalty tool is is very dangerous and and, and very corrosive. Uh, I'm curious if you think that that is a fair assessment to put on on American politics at this point.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would add a couple of things. One is that. Um, I think what Matt was writing about uh, and what other people have written about is um, actually directly related to what we think of as ideology. In history books, we often read about ideology as something coherent and comprehensive and sort of a picture of reality or a vision of a glorious future that makes sense, that explains you know, how millions of people could have fallen for some, some bullshit from the past like a Hitler. Um, In fact, though, ideology is often a blatant lie and Hannah Arendt wrote about that. The um, blatantly counterfactual statements are a a way on the one hand to demonstrate loyalty and to test loyalty. On the other hand, to experience belonging. You subscribe to something that you and this set of people believe and other people don't that creates a a kind of togetherness and it also insulates you from the rest of the world because a unity that's based on a set of lies, uh, the more blatant actually the better, um, is impenetrable to the outside, right? It becomes encapsulated and you're all stuck with each other and you're impervious to rational arguments from the outside because something that is an idea to which truth is irrelevant, cannot be penetrated by irrational argument, right, or by evidence or by fact check. Um, so that's that. That that that's one thing that I would add. And another is that it's not just H.R. McMaster and it's not just um, you know Ro- Rosenstein. It really does penetrate the entire system. It doesn't just have to happen in public. I have experienced the way that it happens uh, you know, in private. I mean, I've certainly experienced it personally living in Russia, but I've also experienced it in the last uh, few months in the United States, talking to people who work in, in in federal agencies, like, say, somebody who works for the State Department, who um, who is trying to do their job to the extent that they understand their job and their job in the way that they understand their job has taken on aspects of untruth. I'll, I'll try to explain how that works <laughs> without sort of uh, betraying any sources. But let's say you work in a program, uh, and this is true of most state department programs, country programs, right, where human rights has been an integral part of your mandate, right? Supporting human rights, promoting human rights, responding in calls to action where human rights is concerned. Now, in the new disposition, there is a secretary of state who has said that human rights are irrelevant. Then there is also the added difficulty of the entire top level of political appointees at the State Department being gone. So there isn't really much communication between this secretary of state who has said that human rights are irrelevant and the program officers who are career people who are still working there. Um, And... Let's say somebody asks you if the State Department is still functioning in a way that, that recognizes the primacy of human rights. And if you are trying to do your job the way that you were hired to do your job, you say yes. And in that moment, you are to some extent lying because that's actually not necessarily what's happening. It's also not what the Secretary of State has said is supposed to happen. He has renounced the, the State Department's commitment to to its human rights programs. Does does that make sense? Yeah, am I, am I being too so vague? much
1: of that right now. No, yeah. no, no. I there is. It, it, this is you could have ten podcasts on this topic, but the compromises, the the ways that people who work inside the Trump administration at some level or another are many of them, many, many, many of them. Particularly, many much of the bureaucracy is very concerned about what's going on. Um, that And that includes some of the political appointees and the way those who believe that it is important that they stay and try to make it better from the inside, what compromises they make to do that, where their line is. In every case, it's different. And the decisions people are making with very good intentions, I think, um, and, and often I think with even very good effects. but But as you say, cumulatively, there becomes a level of, um, yeah, just bullshit pervading the system that makes what it is doing at any given moment unclear. And, and I've been, you know, I've, I'm not sure if I'm going to get around to this piece, but I, I've talked to people a little bit about this and, and something that people who really specialize in the ways governments function have told me is that, you know, one thing a government is always doing, it's too big, a, a federal bureaucracy of the size of the, of America. It's a gigantic organism, And for all the far-flung pieces of it to work well, for the diplomats to do their job effectively in foreign lands, the signals that are coming, that are emanating out through the system have to be clear. And starting with the president himself who constantly contradicts himself and then going all the way out to all these people who are actively in some cases trying to contradict him or muffle the signal or they just misunderstood the signal, it's becoming very – hard to figure out what America is doing and that is a problem for the people who are trying to carry out our policies well. It's the people who are trying to respond to our policies without making a mistake. Hard for people who are trying to gauge what behavior they should do and it's the kind of thing particularly in foreign policy but not only there that can, that can lead to really catastrophic misjudgment. Um, Homeland security officials, border officials who think they're empowered to do things by Trump that maybe they're not really empowered to do yet uh all, all this is very these are the things that long run underneath the administration I think are going to blow up in very dangerous ways yes <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, i mean i also um and it's it's interesting that 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 you say you know things that that people think that they've been empowered to do because that's something that i I don't think we're talking about enough, sort of the the ways in which this government, or some branches of this government, have really changed. You know, and of course, you know, I'm 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 really talking about immigration, just the way that immigration enforcement has changed profoundly, and how many millions of people living in this country that affects on a daily basis, and it hasn't required all that much action. It has required uh, both sort of a loosening of controls and this and this and these enabling signals. Um, and suddenly, you know, the war on immigrants, that which he declared during the campaign, it is already raging.
1: Yes, that is one thing. This administration is getting done in in a way I don't think people realize. You wrote once about something that you felt that Trump and Putin shared—that they were ambitious without being aspirational. Is that is that you?
2: Yes, that is me.
1: <laughs> Wonderful! I'm so <laughs> glad. <laughs> And, and and it struck me as a very important point, and, and I'll lay out at least the way I interpreted it quickly. Something you heard a lot from Obama was a language of aspiration. He often talked about how he was working to be or he was being made a better father, a better husband, a better man, a better president. He had a real language of self-improvement, a real – Evident desire to be better than he was. He was also an ambitious person, right? That 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 went hand in hand with it. But he did have a real sense of needing to live up to something. And you, I think, pointed out quite correctly that Donald Trump, he has a tremendous ambition, a tremendous will to power, but not really a desire to be better than he is. He sort of seems to have a desire to show how good he is already. He doesn't seem embarrassed by what he doesn't know. He doesn't seem concerned about the things he does wrong. When things go wrong, he blames everybody but himself. And it's really stuck with me because there are so many dangerous uh, temperamental characteristics he has. But to me, this is actually the most dangerous uh, because the presidency is too hard of a job for any human being. Everyone, anyone we put in it would do it badly. Everyone we've ever put in it. Against some sort of possible score in the video game of life, has done it badly, including Roosevelt, including all of them. Uh, but you know they do as well as they can, and I think one of the things that separates those who do better than the rest is the ability to learn, the ability to realize maybe you've not been as good as you needed to be, and to to be self disciplining around that. And I'd love to have you expound on this. What 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 does the lack of aspirationalism mean in Russia, and what does it mean here?
2: So, you know, I actually think you're even being a little bit too kind to Donald Trump. I think that he is not even so much saying that he's good the way that he is uh, and he doesn't need to be better. I think he actually, uh, consciously or not, but purposefully appeals to everybody's worst selves. I think that's what we found so unsettling about his campaign. And this is something that he shares with Putin. It's also something that he shares with some of the worst, you know, autocrats of the past, including Hitler, who very intentionally appealed to people's worst selves, right? And now there, I, there I go invoking Hitler. But this is this is one place where he is definitely relevant, right? But um, I think that, uh, and actually, I have a piece on that uh, that came out in the New York Times on Sunday. But um, Trump ran on basically an anti-excellence platform, right, an anti-expertise platform. His message was constantly that, um, that none of the complicated um, politics that, uh, and complicated processes and complicated agencies that define modern government but really even modern life, right, that none of that is necessary. Uh, and this is this radical simplicity is something that unites a lot of populace. Uh, really, their message is always things are much simpler than you've been led to believe. You have been deceived. It's all plain, and the message that comes with that is that these you know, these people who have been pulling the wool over their eyes by uh, over your eyes by saying that that they have all this expertise, they have all this knowledge. Uh, they know how to do things. They've just been lying to you and they've been trying to bureaucratize your life. Right? But I can come in and blow it all to smithereens and it will work better. It will work simply. It will be comprehensible to you. It will be intelligible to you. Um, that is connected with his his sincere contempt for not just specific people or specific ways of doing um, – government that exists in this country, but government in general as it's constituted, right? When he was talking about draining the swamp, he was talking about destroying institutions, which is why he has gone and not only pointed to every agency or almost every agency, somebody who is actually opposed to the mission of that agency. But I think that also doing things like appointing Ben Carson to run HUD was yet another signal that He's anti expertise. Right. Um and it it comes out in little ways as well. Um my I think the I think the story that you're referring to was actually the piece that I wrote about uh the inaugural cake, the plagiarized cake.
1: Which, oh, that's right. Yes. It had a wonderful that was a wonderful frame.
2: Right. Um, which
1: do you want to just say what the plagiarized cake was for a minute?
2: <laughs> yeah. So the uh the cake gate was um uh, uh, there's a celebrity chef named Dove Dov Goldman who was apparently watching the one of the inaugural balls on television or watching the inauguration on television. He noticed that the cake that Mike Pence and Trump cut with a sword during one of the inaugural balls looked exactly like the cake that he had created for an Obama inaugural ball in 2012. And so – he tweeted about it and the Washington Post actually investigated Cake gate and found out that someone had gone to a much more modest bakery in, in in Washington, D.C. and commissioned this cake and had come in with a photograph of the Obama cake and the owner of the bakery said, well, how about I make like a variation of this cake? And they said, no, no, no it's fine the way it is. And she made this the copy of the cake except most of it was styrofoam whereas Obama's was all cake.
1: <laughs> that That's a wonderful metaphor right there, right. by the way. Exactly.
2: But, uh, but I find that moment of the sort of her saying, let me make a variation. They're saying, no, just make an exact copy. Most telling. Because what would be the point of originality? What would be the point of excellence? What would be the point of trying? And I think that this is, you know, the plagiarism scandals that actually have become I mean they're not they, – they don't become full-blown scandals because there's so much else going on. They would be under different circumstances I think. But, you know, from, from Melania's um, speech to, to the cake to now there's a, a secretary of state who plagiarized his master's thesis, right? And it's not surprising because, well, if, you know, somebody's master's thesis was fine the first time around, why wouldn't you reuse it? Uh, remarkably, the entire Putin cabinet – has been plagued by similar plagiarism scandals. They all have PhDs and they all plagiarized or just bought their dissertations. And there's a dogged group of dissidents in Moscow who have been documenting these plagiarized dissertations and it doesn't stick. And I think that the reason it doesn't stick, it doesn't strike people as scandalous or even particularly corrupt because the ethos of these governments is anti-excellence. It's anti-expertise. There is no value to knowledge. So if there's no value to knowledge, then stealing other people's expertise isn't much of a transgression because this thing is meaningless in the first place.
1: So I want to go back to something you said because it it brings us back to something I want to make sure we cover, which is Trump does not bring out the best in the people he appeals to, but he also does not bring out the best in his enemies. Uh, I don't think – anything in American politics is psychologically healthy right now. And I don't think uh, Trump opposition is trending in psychologically healthy directions. And And this brings us back to, to that this final piece of the, the Trump-Russia stuff, which is the ways in which liberals want to believe the worst version of it's true, because it offers them a, a deus ex machina, that they're not going to get otherwise. And you wrote this very eloquently. You wrote, for more than six months now, Russia served as a crutch for the American imagination. It used to explain how Trump could have happened to us. And it is also called upon to give us hope. When the Russian conspiracy behind Trump is finally fully exposed, our national nightmare will be over. And this is spun off on the left into a real sort of Russia conspiracy sphere. Um, my, my colleague Zach Beacham has done really great work on this, but really wild ideas are getting circulated by, you know, people who either were not considered credible a year ago and are, you know, because they're so congenial being considered credible, and they're being amplified by people who just want to believe them. And I'm curious how you see the danger of that. You have been, I think, in your writing, very disturbed by this trend. And I think one version of looking at it is say, ah, you know, these are just people on Twitter going a little bit too far. But you think there's something that is more toxic here. And I'd like to hear how you think about it.
2: Yeah, I'm really glad you've you've come back to this um, because as I was thinking about this when we were talking about sort of the possible scenarios and uh, and the the sort of – the almost best case scenario, which is that Trump is just plagued and uh, and largely paralyzed by these um, allegations – till the end of his first term and then uh, and then doesn't win re-election in part because he's been so tainted by the Russia story. And that all sounds well and good until you stop to consider what kind of political culture we enter the post-Trump era with. I think it's impossible to underestimate how destructive Trump is to uh, to American politics, to American political institutions, but even more to culture. And to language, and to the way we talk about politics, I think that a lot of Americans are not finely attuned to this, because and this is this is another area in which I think you know having lived in an autocracy uh, give, gives me a kind of um, leg up, because I've also lived sort of through a failed recovery from an autocracy. And I know what that looks like. Um, and when when people are sort of breathing a sigh of relief, I think around the 100-day mark, saying, oh, well, he hasn't accomplished anything legislatively. It's all going to be OK. That's not what I would have been taking stock of. I would have been taking stock of what's happened to language, what's happened to to political thought, what's happened to political debate. And some of the things that have happened certainly to journalism have been amazing, right? but some things have been really disturbing like the proliferation of conspiracy theories on the left like i think a larger mood of uh of smearing politicians uh with uh, with the russia brush that's that taps into you know, a long time american political tradition but there's nothing great about tapping into that tradition um there's nothing great in trafficking in that kind of political conversation, and it also doesn't move the anti-Trumpers in any direction except the anti-Trump direction, right? That's not enough to move on after Trump. There's no vision for what America can be if it's not run by President Trump. Where's the Democratic Party? Where are Democratic politicians? Where's the glorious future that they're going to bring us? In place of the imaginary past that Trump has been promoting, none of that is there. none of it, as far as I know, is even being discussed because everybody is talking about how to get rid of this guy and how to use the Russia story to get rid of this guy more specifically.
1: So one of the things that, that I wonder about there is that, on the one hand, I think to, to your point about where are the Democrats at the moment, I think the fact of being powerless and not having a campaign to focus attention just sort of ne- – it almost doesn't matter what they do, right? I think they can say things about Russia. I think they can say things about healthcare uh, and, and it doesn't matter that much. Um, but the place where what you say really resonates with me is Republicans engaged in this kind of conspiracy theorizing from much more powerful sources in their party and with much more indulgence from their elected officials during the Obama era. Um, Trump himself – was the prime progenitor uh, an advocate of the birther conspiracy. And as it, as it took root in the Republican Party and as elected officials decided not to believe it but to let it stand, to try to signal they're on the same side even if they weren't going to follow up on it, it began exerting a sort of gravitational pull. And by 2016, you did have Republicans who were running on all kinds of visions for the country. Marco Rubio had some very interesting speeches about what he wanted to do on, on college and other things. But it was Trump who represented where the base had really moved to. And it was Trump who they were convinced, you know, would fight for them, would lock Hillary Clinton up in jail, would build the wall, would do, would do all these things that, that fit what had become their mindset and would become their core set of concerns. I don't think that's happening in the Democratic Party yet but we're, whatever it is, 135 days into Trump or something. And this is a long time for people to be this angry and this scared. And the sort of rise of a conspiracy sphere has happened faster than I would have thought it would. Um, There's been, I think, a little bit more quick pushback. But if the liberal base is persuaded of that, then it sort of won't matter because, you know, there's one issue of, are Democrats talking about other things? But there's the other issue of, does their base want them to talk about other things? I think right now, more or less, they do. But if it became that they didn't, if it became the litmus test was believing, you know, that Trump had to be impeached over sins that, as of yet, were unclear. Although I, I think the obstruction of justice is very real even now. Um, but if it, if the litmus test became believing in the wilder versions of the Russian conspiracy, uh, that may that that would go in a bad direction.
2: I agree. Um, And, you know, I'm not talking about how the Democrats aren't talking about important legislation. I'm talking about something much bigger, which is, as I said, it's a vision of the future, right? I think that what ultimately made Trump so appealing was not just the conspiracy theories, although I think you're right to point to them, it was his appeal to an imaginary past, right, to a time that none of us actually lived through and none of us remember, but we imagined that we felt comfortable in or they imagined that they felt comfortable in, a simpler time. And um, meanwhile, the Democrats were you – know, the, 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 the the Clinton campaign was saying, no, things are just fine the way they are, uh, which is not actually the way you fight an, an imaginary past. The way – you can fight an imaginary past is through a vision, through uh, and, and it has to be a vision of, of, of a glorious future. Or as as historian Tim Snyder has put it, uh, it if you're going to fight you know, somebody who makes up fictions and conspiracy theories, you have to be interesting. Right. So legislation is not terribly interesting. But there has Breaking to be heart, an interesting Masha. story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm saying this to the wrong person. For a lot of people, legislation is not terribly interesting. I think it's fascinating, but um, um, but you have to tell stories, right? Not you know, not stories about how we took stock and uh, and we realized that um, that things are pretty good, uh, which is sort of what the Clinton campaign was doing, but amazing imaginative engaging stories that people can buy into and conspiracy theories work that way right you can totally buy into a conspiracy theory and you immediately have community and you immediately have things to talk to people about you immediately have ways to engage your imagination but that is just deadly to to the public sphere and you know i think to the fabric of society
1: so I know I know you've got uh, another engagement here. So I'm gonna end, end with a question that we always ask, that is about engaging your imagination. What What are three books? Are you gonna ask I'm me gonna about ask books? I'm gonna ask you about right? books. What are three books uh, that that you would recommend? Matter to you? Maybe help explain this error, Maybe don't. But that people should read.
2: Oh my god! I and I knew you were gonna ask this, and I forgot to think about it. I'm you know I'm a writer, and so the hardest questions are always about books. Um, the obvious one, Hannah Arendt, the origins of totalitarianism, uh, which I'm not trying to say that um, that it's immediately relevant to the current situation, but she makes so many observations about sort of the nature of humanity and the nature of modernity and the nature actually of conspiracy theories and the nature of um, a certain kind of politics. There are whole passages that are just illuminating in, in almost, a, almost a direct sense, right? You Suddenly they throw things into relief that, that you couldn't see before that seemed fuzzy. So I highly recommend reading that book slowly, even if you've read it before. I would um, maybe also say Victor Klemper's um, book, I Will Bear Witness, which is a journal of Germany under Hitler. It's a personal journal written by a linguist and the reason I I find it very useful to go back to quite frequently is that um he is a, he's a close observer of um of language in particular and I think that language uh makes a huge difference to whether we're actually able to to have politics and to have a future right you need a shared language to have a shared reality um and an easy one is actually Timothy Snyder's new book called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from, the, uh, from History, um, which is a terrific sort of uh, listicle of a book that is uh, very clearly and cleanly written. And, and I don't agree with every point that he makes, but every point engages me in, er, in exactly the places that need to be engaged right now.
1: Masha Gesson, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to my producer, Bert Pinkerton, to our engineers, Peter Leonard and Stephanie Broderick, and to our intern, Carly Citrin. Uh, The Ezra Klein Show is on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, It is part of Vox. Uh, I am part of Vox. I am excited all of you are consuming Vox products. You should come to our website uh, and also come back next week for the next exciting episode of The Ezra Klein Show.